following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do want to pray for those heading to Utah. Lord, uh, tomorrow that not only would you give them a safe trip, but Lord, that you would watch over them as they seek to advance the gospel of your dear son and to speak to many, Lord, who've been blinded uh, by uh, false understanding and false teaching of who Jesus is. And I pray, God, that you would work mightily through uh, those going, that you would be use them to be an encouragement to the church, to Liberty Bible Church, that they'll be also coming alongside of and helping out and the VBS that they're going to be doing and just the various outreaches that they have planned. That Lord, use this time, God, to bring many to your kingdom and also use this time in the lives of those going to strengthen them, to mature them, to encourage them in their faith and their walk with you. Thank you too, Lord, for the many dads, Lord, that are here this morning and thank you for a privilege to be shepherding in our homes. I pray, God, that you would move in us to be the men that your word designs for us, describes us to be, that, Lord, we need your grace and your help to do that. I pray, God, that you would move in us, motivate us, encourage us in that direction. And pray, too, now as we go to your word, God, again, you would open our eyes to understand its wonderful truths that we may lift up Jesus as we apply it to our lives through his sacrifice and then the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, our theme the last several weeks has been on spiritual warfare. And we see in Scripture many unusual wars. Many, in fact, strange battles. Uh, one of them would be the Battle of Jericho, where the Israelites marched around Jericho seven times and then blew the trumpets. And what happened to the walls? They came down. They came down. And so then after that, the Israelites entered into the city and overtook it. But Kind of a little bit of a strange occurrence, a strange event. Can you guys think of any other unique or out-of-the-ordinary battles or wars that, in, that we find in Scripture? Any come to mind? Gideon, right? Gideon's 300. Actually, the first service, that was the first one brought up as well. Remember when God whittled down Gideon's army to just 300 men, and they took out the entire Midianite army of tens of thousands of men that they fought? Any others that come to mind that were unique, strange maybe? David and Goliath, right? God using this young man to take down a giant with a stone and a sling. Any others? Jesus in the wilderness. We're going to get to that one next week, brother. That was the epic battle. Satan's temptations. I always got a spiritual guy up around. Where are you, David? I hear you in the echo. Ah, he's up in the very corner up there. Any others that come to mind? Come on, there's a lot of them. Samson, right? Some interesting events in his life, uh, several battles that he fought, some of them very strange. Remember with the foxtails lighting a fields on fire? Think of the Red Sea, right? Remember when Pharaoh's army went in and got swallowed up within the waters of the Red Sea? Or there's the day that the earth stood still. There really was such a day. Uh, it was in time when Joshua and the Israelites were fa- battling the Amorites and God actually kept the earth from rotating for an entire day. The sun stayed in the middle of the sky. Also, too, one of my favorites is the one I call remote control Moses. 
Remember the one where he had to keep his arms up for the Israelites to prevail? And then when they went down, the Amalekite army prevailed. Uh, When he got so tired, it says in the text that they had to go find a stone for him to sit on. And then Aaron and her had to hold his arms up so that Israel would win. That was kind of a strange one. Probably one of the most unique ones, though, is one I call the, uh, the Battle of the Singing Soldiers, the Attack of the Singing Soldiers. It is not some B-movie uh, title, but actually it took place during the time of uh, King Jehoshaphat. And this was a time when several nations around Israel decided to gather together and to invade Israel. And they had made their way all the way up to near Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat found out about this, gathered the people. They prayed and God said, I will fight this battle for you. You do not need to lift a finger. I will gain the victory for you. And so the very next morning, they got up first thing. They march out to the battlefield and King Jehoshaphat puts the temple choir on the front line. Kind of a strange battle strategy, but that's what he did. He had the choir on the front line and as they were marching forward into the battle, The choir was singing praises to God and declaring, probably they were reciting Psalm 136 as well. It talks about giving thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. And so as they were marching into the battle, the choir singing, God caused the enemy to turn on itself and they completely wiped each other out while Israel watched. Very strange and unique and wonderful battle all at the same time. This battle, as the many others that we've mentioned Uh, show us that God indeed gives success, but also, too, how the way in which he calls the people to fight in these battles. He provides the victory, and he provides the way. He chooses the way in which to achieve that victory. We just need to follow his instruction. And this applies to us, especially in this area of spiritual warfare. That God indeed says we fight a a fierce enemy, a powerful foe, And that Jesus Christ has secured the victory. But in the battle, there's a certain way that he wants us to fight. And we need to follow that instruction that he gives. We must fight the battle in the way that God tells us to fight it. And so we see that way given to us in Ephesians 6. So I'd ask if you'd please stand again in the reading of God's word. And we'll be reading Ephesians 6. And again, I will read the whole section here so that we get a feel for the context in which Paul is speaking of this spiritual war. He says, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you. You may be seated. Again, how does God tell us here to engage the enemy? How are we called to fight this battle, the spiritual war? 
put on the armor of God, right? The armor of God. And we talked about this last week. We began with looking at this armor. And, and in these commands, there's a sense of urgency here, right? It's a sense of urgency where Paul says, put it on now. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. Get this armor on. And so he speaks in that way. He uses a certain Greek tense in order to convey that urgency. And at the same time, he repeats the command to make sure that we see it's important. Then in verse 14, Paul gives another command, a command where he says, stand firm. And describes how we are to stand firm, how we are to hold our ground by putting on these various pieces of armor. And last week we started looking at the specifics about the full armor of God. And we began with the first piece. And that was uh, in the phrase, having girded your loins with truth. This is a phrase that Paul used. I thought I'd have a few photos here to maybe kind of give us a feel for what this armor may have looked like. Now, again, those are replicas. But this just gives you an idea of what some of these pieces may have looked like for the Roman legionary soldier. Uh, the belt of truth or girding our loins with truth. The soldier would put on the belt again to, to bind up, to tighten around himself. Any loose article of clothing that he had on, his tunic, among other things. And the analogy Paul gives for us here is that we must gird ourselves with truth. And truth, as we learned last week in this context, he wasn't talking about the truth of Scripture or of the gospel. He was talking about our truthfulness, our faithfulness, our being steadfast to the commitment that we've made to live for Jesus Christ, if you are a believer. And again, just as a soldier must bind up anything that's hanging loosely about him so it will not be a hindrance in the battle, So, too, we must tighten our resolve to be faithful to Christ, to live out our commitment, the promise that we had made when we turned in faith to follow him and to be willing to do whatever is necessary to glorify his name, even if that means difficulties, even if that means it would cost our lives. Because an unfaithful soldier with no determination to fight would be an easy target for the enemy, right? I mean, at the sign of first struggle, he would turn and run. And Christian, know that you face attack, right? I don't need to tell you this. You face attack. You're in a battle, temptation, suffering, trials, discomfort, persecution, affliction. Believe me, it is coming, and it's not, if it's not at your doorstep already. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us, we are in a battle. We will suffer And we need to stand firm as a soldier of Christ. He goes on to say, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. There again is that picture of resolve, of commitment, of focus. That is the girding of ourselves with that faithfulness. And to gird our loins with faithfulness, we have to keep our eyes in front of us on the captain. Because remember, Jesus didn't send us out in front of him. He didn't put us on the front lines as Jehoshaphat did with the choir. Which, by the way, as I was thinking about that, what would the newspaper have looked like the next day? The ancient Near Eastern Times headline, you know, massive victory attained by choir boys. More than just glass windows were broken that day. First hour didn't get that one either. High pitch. Anyway, if you got to explain it, it's not funny. Okay, moving right along. Anyway, where was I? But just this idea of, of commitment commitment in battle and the fact that jesus didn't put us on the front line but he walked the point didn't he he's the one that went out in front of us he took the brunt of satan's full assault 
And he did that for our sakes. And as we keep our eyes fixed on our great captain who has marched before us, we will be encouraged to stay faithful. We will be encouraged to be steadfast as we look to him and his example. So we must stand firm by girding ourselves with truth. And secondly, and we just looked at this briefly, we must stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. I don't know if you can see this well, but this is more the picture of what that uh, Roman soldier typically wore, as I described it a little bit last week. Not that large metal plate that we would see on Roman generals, but, but these, this is what it's called a lorica segmentata. It's uh, these metal strips that bind around from the back and to the front, and they're riveted to leather, which is tied together, tying also the shoulders for protection as well. And you can see, of course, this breastplate will be covering all the vital organs right around the torso. This lorica weighed about 20 pounds, but with the right padding underneath and the fact that it was spread and distributed fairly evenly, a soldier could wear these for long periods of time. In fact, this uh, replica, I had read somewhere where they had tested uh, this uh, type of breastplate, and they found that it was actually very effective against strikes from a sword or an arrow, which made me wonder, who did they get to test this thing, I wonder, but... Anyway, Paul says, put it on. Put on this breastplate of righteousness. The question is, what righteousness is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about the righteousness of Christ? Is he talking about the judicial or forensic righteousness that Romans 3 describes, whereby we are justified by the blood of Christ? Is he talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ? That is the righteousness in Romans 5 describes of Christ that is applied to the believer the perfect sinless life of Jesus that is applied to the one who's come to know him. Or is Paul speaking here of our righteousness, our godly behavior, our pursuit of holiness? Well, to answer that question again, we have to think about the context. We have to remember what Paul's been doing, the flow of thought within this letter, right? We have to remember where this section is that he is describing and what he's been talking about around this section. Again, the first half of the letter to the Ephesians was focused on what God has done in us and our salvation. And the second half of the letter is focused on our response. Again, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of that salvation with which he has given. And then we have in those last three chapters, again, command after command of how the believer is called to respond. Now that Christ has purchased our soul, how does he wish for us to spend that purchase? What does he want us to do? What are the requirements? What are the responsibilities? What is it that God expects from us in response to his salvation? And so the armor here focuses on our responsibility. It focuses on what we are called to do. It focuses on our response. Paul begins with saying our response needs to be a a faithfulness, a steadfast commitment, girding ourselves with truth. And then he says here, this breastplate of righteousness is referring to our behavior, our pursuit of righteousness are seeking to be holy. Simply put, to obey Jesus. That's what Paul means by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Have a resolve to obey Christ. To defend yourself against the attack of the enemy, you must fasten about yourself tightly, just as this breastplate is fastened. You must fasten it about tightly around you, a pursuit of a godly life. Now again, that doesn't mean to separate or make distinct our righteousness from the righteousness of Christ. In the end, it's only by His righteousness, it's only by His holy life being applied to us that we can be empowered to be holy. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, wonderful verse which says this. He made him who knew no sin to what? Be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here Paul explains or describes Christ's righteousness, him who knew no sin. And then saying how that has been applied to believers that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This has been called the great exchange. A wonderful truth that any who would repent from their sin, confess their sin to the Lord Jesus, and place their complete trust in Him, commitment to follow Him to the end of their days. Any who would do that is saved. And not only that, they are justified, declared not guilty. And not only that, because of Jesus' perfect life, that is applied to them. If you're a Christian, listen to me carefully here. Know this. For eternity, you have stamped upon you the words righteous in Christ. And that means something very important. It means you're not on probation. It isn't as if when you get saved, God hands you a piece of paper that could fade away or get lost and say, you know, you're a Christian for a time, maybe. I'm still checking things out. I want to see how this works. See how you do. Then we'll see. That's not how it works. You're not on probation. You have permanently etched upon you righteous in Christ. Your eternal destiny doesn't hang on the balance on what you do. Amen? If it did, we're all done. Go home. This doesn't help you at all. If it depends on you, we're in bad shape. Once you're declared righteous solely from Christ's work on the cross, you are permanently adopted. Permanently. You're His child. You're His child on your best days. And you're his child on your worst ones. Amen? God always looks at you. And do you know who he sees when he looks at you? He sees his son. He sees his son. And the words upon you, righteous in Christ. Now Christ's righteousness, that righteousness is imputed or implied at salvation. It's applied when you come to know him. When your soul is transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so, in Ephesians 6, Paul wouldn't be commanding us to put on the imputed righteousness of Christ because he's speaking to believers. He wouldn't be telling us to get saved if we already are. You can't lose your salvation. You don't have to be told to to go find it again. No, Paul is talking here not about imputed righteousness. He's talking about what the Puritans called imparted righteousness. That is the capacity to do what is right, to be godly, to pursue holiness because of what Christ has done in me. It's the same idea expressed in Philippians 2.12. You work out your salvation for God is at work in you. It's that same idea. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness simply means this. Be dedicated to pursuing holiness. Be dedicated to doing what is right. Be committed to obeying Christ. That's exactly what James 4 talked about when we looked at before in regards to how he said to resist the devil and the words around it carry the same idea. Let me remind you of them. He said, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, we have that common command there to resist the devil, but notice the words around it. How we resist are by submitting to God, by obeying Him, by being humble before Him. 
James says that we need to have a, a, a holy life, to pursue a holy life, to repent from sin. Because there's nothing like a holy life to defend you from Satan's attacks. He'll walk away unsuccessful. So then, how do we put this breastplate on? Well, first you have to recognize you need to have Christ's righteousness applied to you. You need to be saved. You need to be one of His. You can't have faith. You can't have uh, this breastplate of righteousness put on. You can't have the armor unless you have Jesus. You'll not be righteous if you do not have His righteousness. That's why 1 John 2, 4 says, The one who says, I've come to know Him and doesn't keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been perfected. You see, he's talking about there the the natural response, the, the natural reaction of someone who's come to know Christ is that he or she will seek to obey his commandments. It's the it's the natural tendency that when Christ's righteousness is applied to you, you will naturally pursue righteousness. So let me ask you, is your life characterized by a, a desire, an effort? a pursuit to obey Christ? Is holiness a priority for you? How often do you think about it? If over the course of your life you don't see a progression in holiness, if you look back over the last month or year or years and you don't see a movement more and more towards the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have to ask, is His Spirit really in you? For you will naturally be becoming more like Jesus. Again, not perfectly, We won't be like Him until we see Him, and 1 John 3 tells us, but we will be growing. We will be changing. Resolve now then to truly repent, to place your complete trust in Him, and He will change you by His sacrifice. His righteousness will be applied to you. You will be given the strength and the ability to pursue righteousness, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And secondly, to put on that breastplate of righteousness means you also need to recognize your need to love Jesus, right? John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? If you love me. Obedience to Jesus comes from a love of Jesus. And so cultivating your love for him, you will be in at the same time putting on that breastplate. Thirdly, look to Christ's example. He said in John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we see that in Christ's life. He had the firm conviction all through his life. He had the firm conviction to obey God no matter what. To obey him no matter what. And that conviction caused every single one of Satan's arrows of temptation to bounce off of Christ's breastplate of righteousness. Do you have such a conviction? Fourthly, to put on your breastplate means that you recognize your obedience comes by God's grace. If you remember way back when, when we were in Ephesians 2, verse 10, where we talked about that God has created uh, good works for you to walk in, that means that you don't have to manufacture your own holiness in your own strength. As you consistently meditate on Scripture and pray and fellowship with other believers, God's Spirit will enable you to put the breastplate on. For He has good works that He desires and has created and designed for you to walk in. And finally, you also get your breastplate on when you recognize the role 
of other believers. And I talked about this right at the end last week, where if you look at this breastplate, you'll notice there's several ties in front that need to be tied together. There were ties on the shoulder pads, and some of these were designed with ties in the back. And so often, soldiers would require the services or the help of a fellow soldier to make sure it was put on securely, to make sure that every place was covered so that they, he would not be open to, a, uh, to uh, harm. And in the same way as we talked about, we as fellow believers, you need to be helping one another with the armor. Hebrews 10, 24 described it this way, that we are to be provoking or stimulating one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some. How much time do you spend with fellow believers in a given week? How much of that time that you do spend is focused on Provoking one another to love and good deeds is focused on helping one another to be holy, to be like Christ. Because Satan can't touch a holy life. He cannot touch a holy life. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Just as when Jesus withstood the temptation in Matthew 4 and said, Satan, we're done here. And Satan left. So, Saint, what are you doing to be holy? There's a book I would encourage you to read. It's, it's probably been the most impactful to me in this area. It has been the most impactful to me in this area. It's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. If you haven't read that, acquire it and read it. It is a wonderful book, and it will give you many ideas and express and show you just how to put on the breastplate of righteousness in a practical way. Again, it's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Third piece of armor. It's described in verse 15 where Paul says, Having shod your feet, that is having fastened your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me show you a pair of typical Roman soldier shoes. Again, these are replicas, so we don't have any of these floating around. But this gives a pretty good idea of what they probably look like. They were sandals made of very tough leather. And the soles of these sandals were very thick, several layers of leather were uh, fastened together, probably up to an inch thick in some cases. And then hollowed out nails were embedded upon the soles of these sandals for traction and for uh, durability. And then the shoes, as you can see from the leather straps, were then firmly fastened around a soldier's foot. Sometimes these would go up, up the calf a ways and be fastened very tightly. And the Romans had thought carefully about the design of these shoes. Because they recognized if you can harm or injure a soldier's feet, you significantly affect his ability to fight. And so they wanted to make sure after the long marches that, uh, you know, blisters or sores could develop if these shoes weren't designed properly. Also, too, as they went out on these marches, they would often encounter uh, places on these routes where the enemy had put uh, sharp sticks just underneath the surface of the ground so that they'd step on them. Kind of like a, this is the early form of landmines that were used as a tactic in battle. So good shoes were crucial. Several years ago, um, as I had begun to run longer distances, when I did actually run, I suffered from shin splints. And shin splints take place when, because the calf muscle is larger than the shin muscle, which I forgot the name of it, it's tibula anterior or something or other. But basically the, the calf muscle is larger, and so as it strengthens... It strengthens in a a, a faster capacity than the front muscle, causing tension on that shin muscle, which leads to pain and suffering and agony. And the fact I couldn't run 
after that. Even though I had done all my stretches and I, I did what I was supposed to do, I, I could not physically run because of the pain. Well, I had a friend of mine who was a, an avid uh, runner, and I told him about this, and he said, let me look at your shoes. And so I held up my fourteen ninety nine Payless Specials. That's what he did. <laughs> he said, you got to be kidding me. Get some real shoes. So I went out, spent the money, got these Asics that were thick-heeled. I put some sole inserts in. My shin splints went away. Imagine that. With the right shoes that I put on, that was the difference. And in the same way, we need to have the right spiritual shoes, the Christian spiritual shoes that Paul describes here. And he describes them as shoes that are the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice he doesn't say, fasten your feet or bind your feet with the gospel of peace, but with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That word preparation can mean firmness. But in the 40 plus times that it is used in the New Testament, it always refers to this idea of to make ready, to prepare, to equip. So the focus here is not on the condition of the standing, it is on the readiness to stand. Paul is saying that to tie on the shoes, we need to tie them firmly. Shoes that will make us fit, make us ready, make us prepared for battle. Where does he say that readiness is to come from? Look again at the passage. Preparation of the gospel of peace. Comes from the gospel. Or the ESV translates this as the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The NIV says the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The ability to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, to hold your ground in the midst of attack, comes from the gospel. As Paul describes it here, the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he would save for eternity and grant eternal life to any who would repent and place their trust in him. That message, that gospel truth is what motivates us to stand our ground. Some people think Paul is speaking here of evangelism, that he's encouraging through this text to to go out and preach the gospel. Uh, They would then point us to Romans 10, which calls for evangelists, Romans 10, 15. And and there it quotes Isaiah 52, 7, which sounds very similar to Ephesians 6 here. Isaiah says there, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, that verse does sound very similar, and it would make sense, right? We are called to preach the gospel. We are called to proclaim the message of Christ's salvation. But Paul's not referring to that here because, again, notice he says the preparation of, not the proclamation of, the gospel of peace. He'll talk about evangelism in verse 19. Here he wants us to focus on the idea of we're to stand defensively. And part of that defensive stance is to meditate on the gospel, which will prepare you to stand firm. It will make you ready for the attacks of the devil. Again, notice he says readiness here that comes from the gospel, but he doesn't stop there. He calls it the gospel of what? Of peace. The gospel of peace. Paul's drawing attention to a certain element or facet or principle or truth. From the gospel message, it is the gospel of peace. Peace is an interesting word. Paul has used it eight times in this letter. It's a focus of his here to the Ephesians. And it draws ourselves to a a key aspect of the gospel that we need to, to meditate and focus on in order to stand firm. Not only did Christ's death accomplish forgiveness, 
Not only did his sacrifice redeem us from slavery to sin and to Satan, not only did it deliver us from God's wrath, it also brought us peace. Um, Go back to Ephesians 2 for a minute. Ephesians 2. We looked at this uh, last year. Ephesians 2. Beginning in verse 11. This is where Paul, I think, gives the details of what he's talking about in regards to this gospel of peace. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was our condition as non-believers, distant from God, lost in sin, doomed to hell and judgment in hell, without any hope, apart from God. That's it. That is all that you have apart from Jesus Christ. But notice verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our, what? Peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the entity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And he's talking there about how the Jews had used the law as a form of separation for the Gentiles to keep them away. Paul's saying here that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. Verse 16, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, speaking there of Jew and Gentile, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Do you notice what his focus was on here in regards to the gospel? Do you see the theme? Peace. In fact, how many times? At least uh, four or five times of the eight that Paul uses the word peace in his letter are right here in this text as he speaks of the gospel, that Christ's death on the cross brings peace. Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2 here, he says, Jesus came and preached peace, and then he sacrificed himself to achieve peace. For any who would repent from their sin, place their faith in Him. And listen, that that sacrifice that Jesus made, that He gave and appropriated, not only brings peace with God, but look at verse 15 again, that He might make the two, again, that is Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace. Peace among believers. The gospel of peace brings reconciliation, not only with God, but also with each other. Colossians 3.14 says, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Look at verse 19 here of Ephesians 2. Paul incorporates this. He summarizes his thoughts here when he says in verse 19, So then... Therefore, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Two wonderful truths here. He says, now you're in God's family and you are brothers and sisters. You are together now with one another. If you're a genuine believer 
In the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God's permanent promise of this. One, that you no longer his enemy, but his friend. And two, that you now are adopted permanently as his child. You are of God's household. And three, that you have eternal fellowship with God. And that now you can have deep and abiding relationships with his people. These are the truths that Paul is calling us here to focus and meditate and dwell upon as he describes being prepared by the gospel of peace. Because these are the truths that Satan will seek to undermine. One, he he wants you to doubt whether or not your salvation is permanent, right? He wants you to doubt whether or not you are truly adopted as God's child. He wants you to, to doubt or to, he wants to undermine our relationship with one another. We talked about before, one of his schemes is to sow discord among believers. He wants to attack the very message of the gospel of peace. Christ bought priests between us and the Lord and between one another. And Satan wants us to not believe or live out or appropriate or understand either of those things. He wants us to keep thinking, you know, God, God really isn't for you. He's still kind of checking things out with you. He's still wondering if he truly wants to adopt you, if you are really his. You really aren't friends yet. He wants to sow discord among us. He wants to completely undermine and flip upside down this gospel of peace. And so Paul says, you know what? To stand firm in the battle, to be ready to face the attacks, especially those attacks of doubt and disunity that Satan will bring, you need to make yourself ready by dwelling on what is true. That through Christ's sacrifice, you're now at peace with God. And again, that's not the absence of conflict. That's the the actuality of a relationship. And you are at peace with one another. Peace with God and with one another. The next piece of armor that Paul addresses here in verse 16, he says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles or arrows of the evil one. And a picture here of what a Roman shield may typically look like. A key a strategy in the early stages of battle Uh, particularly in Paul's day, was to soften up the defenses for a ground assault. And to do that, you would would, uh, send a barrage of flaming objects, arrows, spears, uh, uh, rocks that have been dipped in pitch and lit on fire. And you would would, uh, send this barrage of these flaming objects in order to confuse or frighten or scatter or injure the enemy before coming in with ground troops. We still do that today by bombing runs that are done in order to soften up an enemy's defenses. And Paul draws upon this analogy in our spiritual war. He, he depicts here a believer as being under heavy assault by the weapons, by the arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one. You identify with that? You feel like you're under assault at times? You should, because it is true. He assaults us in all kinds of ways. These projectiles, they come not only in the form of temptation, but also in the form of affliction, persecution, trials, false teachings, difficulties, suffering. In addition to that, we are also under or here in Satan's world system, which the Apostle John says is full of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Just take a trip through Vegas and you will see that. You can't look around. Uh, my daughter was telling me about her, um, on their honeymoon, they went through Vegas on the way they were going uh, up to Utah, I think, or something, and she had to, you know, tell Michael, basically, look at the floor the entire way through. 
just full assault. We're assailed from every angle, from Satan's world, from Satan himself, from his demons. And so we need one more layer of defense. We need a shield. Roman soldiers had two kinds of shields. One was a small uh, round shield about two and a half feet in diameter that they would use for uh, close combat. The other was a shield like the one you see here. It was much larger, about two and a half feet wide by four feet high. It was made of two wooden planks that were glued together and covered by animal skin. And then the edges were typically uh, riveted with metal around them to keep it together. And then often what they would do with these shields is they would uh, immerse them or soak them in water so that when that initial barrage of the flaming arrows would come that uh, they might be extinguished within these shields. And notice here that he says in verse 16 that he doesn't say and take up the shield. He says in addition to all. saying after these first three pieces of armor, there's more. In addition to those, take up the shield. Grab the shield and have it with you. Notice he says there, don't, it's not something that you would bind to yourself like the first pieces of armor, right? Where they would tighten the belt around them and they would also uh, fix firmly the breastplate of righteousness and also to the, the uh, sandals that they would put on were to be tightly fastened. But the next three pieces, the shield, the helmet, and the sword were picked up just before battle. They would, would take them up and go out to fight. And so Paul says to take up the shield. I think he's just being consistent with his uh, armor analogy here. He says, take up the shield, and he calls it the shield of what? The shield of faith, right? The shield of faith. And he's not speaking here of the faith, uh, the truth of the scripture, or, or God's gospel, or doctrine. Rather, he's talking about here, again, our response, our faith, our faith in God. And he's putting a simple principle out here for us. If you would be able to have victory over temptation... If you would endure persecution, if you would survive affliction or any trial or any attack from the evil one, you must have faith in God. That's it. You must trust God. You must trust him. Because Satan will always give a better offer, so it would seem. He'll always provide an easier path. And if you don't take that route, what he will then try to do is to pressure you to sin. Or to pressure you to despair or try to convince you that, you know, God's ways are hard. They're difficult. They, you know, they don't even make sense half the time. Why would God say that you have to do that? Or why would he restrict you from doing that? That doesn't feel right, does it? But to stand firm, you have to ask yourselves these questions. Simply this, can God be trusted? Can he be trusted? Does he keep his promises? Does he really Work all things for good for you? You have to be able to answer these questions. Is there a way of escape from every temptation? Which he promises in 1 Corinthians 10. This is what it comes down to, beloved. This very simple truth. You have to come to the place where you trust God implicitly. Trust Him when He says to love others as you love yourself. Trust Him when He says to be respectfully subject to the authorities in your life. When He says to submit to your husband, to obey your parents, to be subject to the governing authorities, to your boss. Trust Him when He says, love your wife without condition. Love her sacrificially. Trust Him when He says to discipline your children when they disobey. Or when He says to unconditionally forgive. Or to be patient. Or to not lie or gossip. Trust him when he says that intimacy is only 
for marriage. And that marriage is only between a man and a wife. We need to trust Him in these things. Because when temptations come, you have to pick up your shield and you have to tell yourself, sometimes out loud, you have to say, I will believe God in this. I will trust Him. I will trust Him. He's the only one who's trustworthy, isn't He? Who else in this universe has proven themselves trustworthy? That has kept every single promise. That has said, I will never leave or forsake you. When you come to that point of temptation, you have to pick up the shield by saying, I will do what His Word says, even though it's hard. Even though I don't want to. Even though I don't understand how this is going to help me. I will do what God has called me to do. I will trust Him no matter what. I will have faith in God, whatever He has for me in this trial, even if He doesn't tell me why I have to go through this trial. Even if I never find out what this trial was in my life for. I will trust Him. And you resolve to do that. Do you trust God no matter what? You remember the time when the 12 spies went into the land, right? They had just come out of Egypt. It was less than two weeks later. They were at, I think, the southern uh, part of the promised land. And so Moses sent in a member from each of the tribes, 12 of them. They went into the land. They scoped it out. They came back. And they said, yeah, this land has got all kinds of good stuff. And he brought fruit back and all examples from things that were there. And then 10 of those 12 individuals said, but you know what? We can't go in there and take it. These people are huge. There's too many of them. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And as a result of their report, the rest of the Israelites, it says they cried all night. They wept all night. And they wanted to get Moses, give him the boot and appoint another leader so they could take them back to Egypt of all places. Egypt. Now, why did they respond that way? Why did they respond that way? Wasn't this the same God who had delivered them from Egypt and the oppression they'd suffered for 400 years? Wasn't this the same God that as he delivered them, they watched as God swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, as we mentioned earlier. Aren't these the the same people who experienced God's provision in the desert of food and water, who even showed his patience toward them when they complained? We're out of food. I want some meat, right? And God still provided for them i mean we we read this you know as you're going through the the story of the israelites and i mean you get to this part in fact they even have a note in my bible what is your problem people are you kidding me well it's interesting moses 40 years later as the next generation was poised ready to enter the land he said these words to them in deuteronomy 1 the lord your god who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust Yahweh, your God. Moses describes the issue right there. You didn't trust God. That's why originally your forefathers did not want to enter the promised land. Psalm 78 describes this several times. It repeats, you did not have faith in God. Listen, we, if we're to hold our ground against Satan, you must trust God. You have to. Not trusting him would be like standing up in battle with just the breastplate on, 
No shield in front of you. How long do you think you'll make it before an arrow gets through? Not very long. So take up your shield. Put your confidence in God. That is the only way to survive Satan's attacks. He's very good at tempting. He's very good at coming up with circumstances or using other people in your life to move and and try to deceive you. He did an excellent job with Eve, and he's done so all through history. And the only way to survive and defend yourself is in the end to trust God regardless. That's exactly what Peter said after he talked about the fact Satan is a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour. And he said in 1 Peter 9, those familiar words, but resist him. And then he adds, strong in faith. That is how to resist him, to trust God, to be strong in faith. In fact, turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, I want to read a portion from what John read earlier this morning. Here in the book of Hebrews, again, we have a group of people who made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, but trials had come, suffering had come, great persecution had come upon them, and many of them were tempted to walk away. This following Jesus is hard. This isn't what I thought it would be. I'm going to go back to what I used to believe. And so here in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews, this is probably actually a sermon that was preached, right around the middle of chapter 10, he moves from uh, uh, proclaiming the importance of following Christ and how he is far above everything else, all angels, uh, he's above all things, he is God himself, and it is through him and him alone that we can have salvation. And in the middle of verse 10 is the hinge section of the sermon where he says, this is what you need to do in response. And as we approach the end of chapter 10, he brings up this issue of their suffering the persecution, and he says in verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving that is the keeping safe of the soul. He says, you, you will endure. You can endure this. Just have faith in God. Trust Him. And then he follows this in chapter 11 with many examples. This chapter 11 is famous for them, right? It's called the chapter, the hall of faith. Right? The many examples of those who, just like us, went before us in difficult circumstances, under trial, under temptation, And he uses their examples to show their trust in God and how God used that to help them. It's a wonderful chapter to focus on and will really help you. Spend some time in this chapter. If you want to know how to get that shield of faith up, look to the examples in front of you, especially the one that he uses to summarize right at the beginning of verse 12, where he says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the one who went before us, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He went forward ahead of us on the front, the example of one who trusted in the Father. Um, Jack did a number of wonderful messages from Hebrews 11. Go back on the website and listen to those as well. After taking up the shield, Paul then says to take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. A Roman's helmet was typically an iron skull cap and inside was lined with leather or cloth for comfort. The outside may have had some bronze that was fitted onto it. 
I don't think I need to explain what a helmet's for, right? All right, it's pretty straightforward. Protect the brain. Obviously gives that protection. In regards to our spiritual armor, Paul calls it the helmet of salvation. This isn't the only time that helmet of salvation was used in Scripture. Back in Isaiah 59, verse 17, we see it describing how when God delivered His people, it was said that He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. In fact, it's probably that passage that Paul was thinking about here. And this isn't the first time even Paul used this metaphor of a helmet of salvation. About ten years earlier, he wrote to the Thessalonians and he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, the question arises, what does he mean by salvation here? Is he talking about it in the objective sense, the salvation of God? getting saved or is he using it here in a subjective sense about our our hope or our assurance or uh, our dwelling upon our salvation well again paul isn't speaking here about getting saved because who is he talking to very beginning of the letter he addresses it to the saints who are at ephesus right he's speaking to believers you can't lose your salvation so he's not saying go get it again What he's talking about here is the conscious possession of our salvation. That is what the helmet of salvation is referring to. It's the motivation that I gain from dwelling on the fact that God has saved me, has secured me, and what the salvation that he has given will bring. Because again, Satan wants us to doubt that. right? He wants us to not have security in our salvation. He wants you to be wondering, is God really going to keep me to the end? Am I really one of his? And, and what is at the end, really? Is it going to be worth it? Because, again, if Satan can, can shake our confidence in our security of eternal life or uh, shake us and convince us that the reward at the end of it isn't worth it, then he can very much take away our resolve to fight, right? Because, again, if you aren't convinced and confident of where you're at with the Lord Jesus or if you think that heaven isn't worth it or all that salvation brings isn't worth it, you're not going to have the resolve to fight. I mean, you ever have those days when you wonder that? Is it all worth it? Where you honestly ask yourself, you know, I'm not really sure if God will keep His promise on the other side. Hope and assurance are powerful motivators. One pastor said, The helmet of salvation is that absolute confidence in the saving, keeping power of God's sovereign grace. See, God spent a lot of effort to seek and save the lost. And those whom He finds, He doesn't lose. They are secure. Once He has a hold of you, He will not let go. And there's nothing in this universe that can open His hand. In fact, as Daniel talked about, no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? No one can grab anything out of God's hand. Jesus Himself said in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Did you hear that? The Father's will. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing. I lose nothing. Jesus is a good accountant, Jeff. He's a good accountant. 
He'll lose nothing. He doesn't forget. He doesn't lose track. And he will hold till the end. Raise it up on the last day, he says. This sounds a lot like an eternal promise to me. No one will be cast out, Jesus says. Any that the Father brings to him, he will not reject. He will not say, no, not that one. He will take and not lose. Later on, Jesus said in John 10, you know this, first my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They know me and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one is able to snatch them from my hand. And just to make sure we get the point, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from his hand. Jesus says it twice just to make sure we get it, that we understand. This was in the context of him saying, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. You don't think I'm going to do that and lose track of you, do you? You don't think I'm going to suffer through all of this for you on behalf of my father and lose you or reject you or cast you out? Wonderful encouragement. Nothing in this universe can separate us. From the love of Christ. Turn to Jude. I want to close here. Jude expresses this wonderful truth about the security of our salvation and the encouragement that brings. Jude's uh, right before Revelation. I want you to see how he begins and ends this letter. Look at verse 1. Uh, Jude, who was the half-brother of Christ, says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Do you catch that word, kept? It means to guard, to watch over, to preserve. And the tense Paul uses here has the idea that when God saved you in the past, he placed a guard over you from that moment on up to the present so that no one would take you. You know, Paul's been talking about this idea of having the armor of God for our defense. We have to also remember we need to put that armor on, but at the same time, who is standing right there with us? God is. God will protect you ultimately. God is the one who will not allow you to become a prisoner of war. You'll never be a prisoner of war. Because God is standing there. God is keeping you for Jesus Christ. And that protection will not stop. Look at the verse, uh, verse 24 at the end of Jude. In his benediction, he says these words. Now to him who is able to keep you who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Did you catch first part of verse 24? To Him who is able to keep you. It's a different word than He used in verse 1, but it's a synonym. It carries the same idea. To Him who is able to protect, to guard you. And notice what he says, make you stand in his presence. He will guard you all the way to the end when you stand before Christ and see him in his glory. And he says there, you're blameless. Again, righteousness of Christ. Blameless with great joy. Oh, what encouraging words. God will keep you until you see Jesus. Philippians 1.6 
He said that I'm confident this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Peter, he said these words in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And listen, reserved in heaven for you who are protected, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, to put on the helmet of salvation is to meditate on those words, to meditate on those truths that God will guard you to the end, that you have an eternity of Christ in front of you, that those trials, those temptations, those struggles, which we face now and sometimes fail, that one day those are done. One day it's over. We'll be standing before Christ with great joy. Through Christ's death on the cross, you've been freed from sin, and one day we will realize that freedom fully and completely. And taking on your helmet of salvation means to dwell on these truths, to hold on to them. For it is in them you will stand firm. It is in them that you will stand your ground in the battle with Satan and his demons. There's a future reward that God has promised, and I it could be appropriate for us to read together these two verses from Jude that Jude ends with and read them together prayerfully. Again, we'll start in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep, let's read them together, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we thank You for this promise that of all that You bring to Your Son, none will be cast out. Lord, we thank You for the promise of the future inheritance we have, the riches that You have given to us, not because we have earned them in any way whatsoever. Your Son has earned them and has chosen to give them to us. To give us His righteousness. To give us, Lord, right standing with You, fellowship with You. We thank You for that. We thank You for the encouragement of these truths about the armor. Lord, enable us, empower us by Your Spirit to put on the breastplate continually to to pursue holiness with a great fervor. Lord, to be girding ourselves with truth, to be committed and, and maintain that steadfast commitment to follow You, to be faithful to You. And Lord, to to put on the shoes which make us ready, that, that we would dwell on the peace that You have brought, that we would not listen to any of Satan's lies. And Lord, that we would take up the shield of faith that we would trust in You no matter what. We stand before You as a needy people. Lord, we thank You for these pieces of armor, these truths with which we can defend ourselves against the attacks of the evil one. And we thank You most especially that You will not let any of those attacks take us away from You, that we cannot be snatched from Your hand. 
You're a good and gracious God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.